Hey there, welcome to Sauce Unbound, brought to you by Sauce Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Mehdi, co-founder and CEO at Cycle, a product management platform that turns product feedback into customer engagement. They raised $6 million a little less than a year ago and are backed by some of the coolest people in product. Uh, super excited to learn how you did that and uh, what you're working on. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Anna. Super happy to be here. Sure. Yeah. Well, we've tried to schedule this for a while, so <laughs> I'm really interested in like what you've been doing this this past couple of months because I know you've been working on some new features. But uh, let's maybe first get to the inspiration behind the product and uh, your background a little bit. Sure. So, what's my background? So, I. I graduated as an engineer, uh, so more like on the technical side and started my career as a data scientist. But very quickly, I transitioned into product management. Uh, you know, I was asking the why question a little bit too often. So the CEO of the startup I, I was at told me at some point, look, Midi, you're annoying everybody. You're asking too many questions. There's this new thing. It's called product management. You, you're going to like it. You're going to talk to users. You're going to figure it out. And that was like about seven years ago. I ended up becoming a product manager. And I love that role, you know, at the intersection of design, technology, and, and, and business. Mm -hmm. But the idea for Cycle kind of came from, from there. I was quite frustrated with the tools that were uh, available to me. So for me, it was pretty easy, like the collaboration with designers and engineers. I was pretty straightforward. I love that stuff. I love, like, you know, like building cool products. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, what I thought was hard was really collaborating with uh, customer-facing teams, you know, and more generally, the communication side of the work. And what I learned quickly is that the way you create trust uh, with the rest of the organization as a product manager, or as a product leader, uh, is through this idea of feedback systems. It's how do you make sure that everyone can give you feedback uh, frictionlessly, but more importantly, when they give you feedback, how do you make sure that it doesn't enter a black box and that at each release, you're able to get back to them and tell them, hey, thanks, remember two months ago, you gave us that piece of product feedback look at what we shipped, uh, you just helped us improve the product, that's awesome. And that feedback loop concept, I very much I became obsessed about it because I realized that that was the key to really make sure that everyone trusts you. But I also learned that it has an impact on customer retention and engagement. You know, like this one time, and that's the time I think I, I, I thought, okay, I, I need to do something about it, is I was reading churn surveys. And three different users uh, were writing, hey, we're out to the competition because, you know, we've been waiting for that feature for a while. And then I learned that the feature they had been waiting for a while, it had shipped, you know, but no one told them. And I thought that that's crazy. You know, even people who we know asked us for a feature, we're not able to get back to them when we ship it. And I thought, okay, feedback systems is a thing. I tried all the tools out there, nothing really quite works. And so, yeah, I started working on Cycle to solve that problem. Okay, super cool. So it grew out of your own necessity. I, I love those stories. And I watched your application video to YC. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs> yeah. If you don't mind, I'm just going to share it like below. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, go for it. So... <clears throat> Yeah, and uh, as always, there is a question 
you know, there, there is one thing I know, I understand the problem. Maybe this could be better and that could be better. And this is exactly what I would like to have as I work as a product manager, but it doesn't exist. And then, you know, most product managers would be like, oh crap. And then just move on. But you built it. So how did you get there? When did you start building it? How did you find your co-founder? And at what stage did you decide that YC is the way to go? Yeah. So first of all, that's interesting. The YC video is out there, but in the end, we didn't do YC. So that's funny. So we ended up raising a seed round at the same time that we, that we applied. And so we ended up not doing YC. But basically how it worked is, so I was frustrated with that problem, right? And I started hacking tools together to try and fix it. That was the best solution that I found was really, it was the early days of Airtable, Notion, Zapier. It was like hacking stuff. That was basically the first prototype for Cycle. And then I saw, okay, this, this is fun. You know, it's cool to hack no-code tools, but it, it doesn't scale. Like how might we build a better solution than that? You know, like still a flexible tool, but opinionated on that use case of feedback systems. And so, you know, as a product person, I did, I did what product people do, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I started like, you know, designing uh, mockups and, you know, like shipping prototypes and, and, you know, like dreaming about, you know, what this like solution should look like. And very quickly after that phase, uh, what I did is uh, I took a flight to San Francisco because mm-hmm. I wanted to learn. I, I, I read that book at, uh, at that time it was called The Mom Test. Um, which really inspired me. And I was like, okay, now you're building your dream uh, solution like by yourself and it solves your problem. But do other people even have that problem or are you just like a crazy uh, person? And I thought, okay, product management, you know, like San Francisco is, you know, it's Silicon Valley. That's where they're the most at at product management. And I thought, okay, I need to go talk to product managers there. I need to, to go talk to product leaders out there and see if that problem that I'm trying to solve, does it even resonate? And so I went there, interviewed like hundreds uh, of product people and realized that actually it did resonate, right? So I did like a lot of user research. I was showing them my prototypes and they were really liking it a lot to a point where, you know, they were asking whether they could invest uh, in the company when I, when I would start to work on it. And that's what, that was basically the, you know, the starting point. Okay. We need to, we need to do this. And so how did, how did I find my co-founder? So I went through a startup studio called eFounders. I don't know if you heard of them. I, I think Chris, Pas- uh, Chris Pasquier from Slide, who uh, was also on, on the podcast, he went through yeah. like the same uh, sort of startup studio. And you know, like they're in Paris. Uh, they're amazing, think- like in the early days. Yeah, you heard yeah, of them? Yeah, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of French founders went through them. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the French YC, uh, you could, you yeah, could yeah. say. Uh, so the uh, amazing companies went through it, like a uh, front or Spendesk. And so I thought, okay, if, if I have to do this, I need to surround myself by the best. And I was following them for a while. And so I contacted them, Hey, I have this idea. Uh, what about we build it together? And basically they helped me find my co-founder because I didn't have a co-founder as well. And I thought this is the brand that will help me find a great co-founder to basically go full-time and start working on it. So that's, yeah, that's the genesis uh, of Cycle. Super cool. All right. So yeah, you were talking to to a lot of of founders and and product managers and product people in San Francisco. 
oh, how does it work? Because again, this is something that a lot of early stage founders struggle with. Like, what do you do? Do you stalk them at cafes? Like, do you do you go to the universities where these they study or teach or like, what do you? How do you approach these people and how do you start talking about your product? Not you know sounding salesy, not sounding like, hey, I need your money, but you know, I just want to talk and validate my idea. Yeah, so that's a great question. I think the, the first thing is people out there, they have a, a deep respect for folks that come like from far to, you know, like to San Francisco to meet with people. And yeah. I'd say when I reached out, I was telling them, hey, I'm in SF for two weeks from that day to that date. Like, would you be up for a coffee and like chat product? And the simple fact that you're telling them you're going to their city, you're making the move. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I think they respect you for it and uh, it will make them want to talk to you. So that's, I would say that's the first advice. Like many people don't take the leap, you know, they try to just reach out, uh, you know, stay in Europe and reach out to those folks. But I, I think it's harder to get a Zoom call than to get a coffee because you travel to the city. So I think I'd say that that's the first thing. The other one is, um, did you, did you help? Oh, well, well, yeah, I, I'm not, yeah, I, I ingested <laughs> way too much coffee. <laughs> Uh, but I realized as well that a coffee chat there is like you basically go sit down at a cafe, but you don't drink uh, anything. And that's, uh, it's very scripted. So it's like, it's 30 minutes, it starts on time, it ends on time. So you need to learn the code um, a little bit. But I'd say the second piece of advice is uh, warm intros is what works best. So I didn't do much like cold outbound. I looked at my network, like who do I know who lives in SF or who has lived in SF? who's in their network uh, that I believe is interesting. And then I ask them for warm intros. And so it helped me get maybe like the first 10 meetings. And what I did is I, I packed my first week with, with meetings and I kept the second week uh, completely blanked. And what happens, I think the other thing that's very important is every interaction, you know, if you respect their time, your high energy, your articulate, and at the end, how to ask for help, they will want to help you. And so what I did is each, after each meeting at the end, I was asking them, hey, do you know of like two, three people that I should absolutely meet while I'm here? I take note of the like three uh, people. And then right after I send them a follow-up email with a blurb, like a forwardable blurb, like, hey, can you forward this to that person we talked about? And so I make it like super easy for them to help me. And then okay. it creates a snowball effect, right? So for each meeting you have, then you get three more intros. And then it, it, it never ends. So that's kind of my advice that I, I would give to people who want to break into uh, the, the ecosystem. Yeah, awesome. And this is something that we talked uh, a little before shooting the, the podcast. It's just the difference in cultures and like the approaches. And this is something that Dirk Salmer talks a lot, like when you approach a, an American founder, and then you say, oh, can I look at your data? And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll just send you everything. And then you go to a European founder and they're like, can we sign an NDA? And then like, I'm, I'm going to send you this, but not that. And this, but not that. And like, they're a lot more closed. Yeah. Like what would they share and like what they can give you? So was that something that you also experienced because, well, you worked in Paris and, and now you're traveling back and forth from Paris to San Francisco and back? Yeah, there are like definitely a lot of cultural uh, differences that, that you need to learn to learn fast. 
One that I struggle at the beginning is, you know, in France, like there's no such thing as a 30 minutes meeting, you know, it's always like at least an hour, an hour and a half, and you don't go straight into the meeting, you know, first mm -hmm. you meet, you know, you go to the coffee machine and you, and then you tell your life to each other, you know, it's the yeah. first half an hour is you basically, you, you talk about your life. In the US, it's really like, it doesn't work like that, you know, like the meeting starts on time. The chit chat is like very short, you know, like you talk about the weather, like, like for 30 seconds and then you go straight mm -hmm. into it. And so at first I was like, I was inefficient, you know, I was trying to tell about my life and then people were cutting me. Hey, like, shouldn't we go? We only have, I have a hard stop, right? We only have 30 minutes. So maybe, you know, maybe we go uh, straight to it. And so, yeah, in a way I love that effectiveness about Americans and then they're very conscious of, of time, right? So if, if it mm -hmm. ends... Uh, in 30 minutes and five minutes bef uh, before the end, like many of them will stop you and say, hey, we only have like five minutes left. Uh, I want to make sure that I can be helpful. So, you know, like, mm -hmm. what are like sort of the next steps? And then at the end of the time, they're, they're gone. So I think yeah, the way you approach meetings is, is very different. And another one we talked about offline, but which really surprised me is, you know, like in Europe and particularly in France, but I think in Germany as well, we're like a very like, pessimistic, you know, and the way you help each other is, you know, I'm going to tell you like all the many ways your project is, is, is going to fail. And it's not to be mean, you know, it's a way to be kind. It's telling you, Hey, I think yeah, you yeah. should pay attention to this and this and this, yeah. but you know, like as a founder, I, I mean, it, it keeps you grounded. That, that's nice, but it's also hard. Like it takes you a, a, a lot of energy and sometimes you need people to, you know, like project optimism and like give you energy. And in the U S it's really that it's the opposite there. I think they're the most optimistic people on earth. And so yeah. their mindset is always, okay, how can I help you? You know, like, how might this work? Uh, not yeah, yeah. how might this not work? How might this work? And I think it's super uh, energizing. So that's why I love to be in between both continents. France keeps me grounded and the U.S., you know, make, makes me dream bigger. <laughs> but, well, uh, honestly, I mean, I can completely see you just blend into the culture because of your energy. So big <laughs> so it's great and i guess it also helped i don't know if you learned it but if you learned it great then you know probably every other founder can because mm. yes it helps uh especially if you if you're making the first impression so and first impressions are super yep. important when you're raising funds right so yeah. let's get to exactly. it you raised six million dollars and i mean that's that's a lot of money right and you raised from some really cool people that know product so how did it work for you and uh was it the energy is it true that uh, you know 80 percent of the decision is the founder's energy like how you believe in the product i think so i think it's something i, I learned quickly is it's basically it's one of my sort of rules is in every interaction I must leave the other person with more energy than when they entered the interaction. And it's really, it's, it's a rule that I live by. And I think it's definitely helpful in a context like a fundraiser or even more generally recruiting or like sales. It's uh, I think, yeah. Do you give people energy and are you in a way like, do you make them want to help you? You know, I think that's really one of my hacks, you know, it's really in each interaction, giving other people energy and making them want to help me. And then I'd say the other part that that's helpful. So in the context of a fundraise, like before you formally raise, then you can build relationships with investors. And 
So you ask them for help in the right way, so they help you. And once they help you, you're grateful, right? And you show them that it had an impact. And it's human beings want to be helpful. And I think that's how you, you create relationships as well. So you manage to get some help and then, you know, you're grateful that they helped you. And so the day you start formally raising, you know, they have like, they're very optimistic about you because they feel they're already a part of your progress in a way, because they give you advice, you apply the advice, you show them that you applied the advice and that you made progress. And so I think it helps a lot with the fundraise. And so I'd say for me, that's one of the key things that helped us raise money. It's like building the relationships far ahead. And then you have time to show progress. I think investors, they like to see, they just, you know, don't meet you at one point in time and they have to make a, a decision quick. They want to see the trajectory. You know, like I often say trajectory matters much more than state. And so I think it's important to build relationship for like some time and then show that you've delivered. And so they see the trajectory at the time you, you raise and I think it helps you uh, very much. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Absolutely. I feel like when, you know, when it's just like one time and a VC has to make a decision really quickly is that when they actually, they already approach you and they usually approach you when, well, in a way you can kind of survive without them already. You've, you've made it that far, you know, you made yourself visible, so you're not going after them. So that's when they have to make their decision really quick and it's not about pitching anymore. But coming back to the fact that you've got this list of great people backing you up, is it, how does it work for you? Because I could see it both ways, right? It could be great validation, right? In, in the eyes of your customers, you know, if those people are backing you up, then you definitely have something good going on because they've worked on great products. But at the same time, it could be maybe a little bit difficult to navigate because like you said, they like to see that they give you an advice and you follow the advice. And there are a lot of big opinions going on on your list, right? So it could mm. be, I don't know, maybe difficult to navigate if they're actively involved like after the race. But how does it work for you and how do you do it? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. It's true that we, we do have like a very long list of investors, uh, but the truth is only very few of them are very involved. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we have like a, a board of directors with basically three people. It's mm -hmm. myself, Ed Sim from Bold Start, a great fund in the US, and then Amory from eFounders. Mm -hmm. And so they are the two people with whom like, I really interact the most and you know, like, I know they have my back and we're aligned on what we want to achieve. And when it's hard, you know, I know I can talk to them about it. And so 
that's the most important part of our investors. The others, I, I'd say, you know, you send investor updates, you catch up uh, once in a while, but not much more than, you know, like your peers, your mentors. And so I think that the question is like, how do you take advice when you talk to so many people and, and all those people have a lot to say, like, how do you, what advice do you take and what advice you don't take? Yeah. It's actually something that I, I struggled a lot at the beginning. And I think now for me is really, I take the advice that resonates, you know? So mm -hmm. always like, I'm grateful that uh, the person gives me advice, you know, and I, I, I take note of it. And if it resonates, I act uh, upon it and I show them that I'm grateful that they give me advice that resonated. And if it doesn't, I just move on. And I feel sometimes okay. there are, there's advice you receive that's great advice, but you're just not ready to take it, you know, because you're busy validating like a strong assumption. It's not the right timing for you to challenge the thing that they challenge you on. And so you just ignore it. And then a few months after, you know, like it starts resonating. Ah, this advice that I received from that person, I, actually, I think it, it's relevant. And the day it does resonate, then you get back to them and, and, and you thank them. So that's really the way I, I've been approaching advice. But obviously with the board of directors, it's a little bit different. They're like more uh, skin in the game. And that's another topic. Like, how do you manage a board? Uh, the incentives between like venture capital and founders. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's maybe talk a little more about your whole growth trajectory in the product roadmap, because I know you guys launched on, on product hunt. I think I follow you there. I'm pretty sure I do. And it was a big launch. You got to be the first, the best product of the day. And I think the best product of the week too. Right. And yeah. how did it work for you? Because again, if, if somebody launched on product hunt, I make sure we talk about it here because for so many founders, it's very different. And some say, oh, you know, it just skyrocketed us. And, you know, the growth of the product was never the same. And some say, yeah, you know, it was good to like to validate and to show it to people, but it was just, you know, nothing came out of it. And there was like zero dollars to, to show for it. So again, what was your experience? Yeah, so, so you're right. So we launched twice on, on, on Product Hunt, like once uh, a year ago and another, another time, like two months ago. So yeah, we ended up product of the day both times. I think for us, it had a huge impact on uh, like perception and sort of like brand awareness. We can talk about that later, but it took us a very long time between the day we started working on Cycle and the day we actually launched. And so... Pre-launch, people were started to doubt, you know, like this cycle thing, you know, what's going on. I've been on the wait list like for a while, like, does it even mm -hmm. exist? And, you know, so it, it had a huge impact on us that, wow, this is like, this is real. Like the product is polished. The marketing is awesome. They're on point. And it generates, generated thousands of signups really mm -hmm. at a time where we felt like we needed to accelerate in terms of customer onboardings and the go-to-market learning. So it, I think for us, it really brought the volume of signups that we needed to continue to iterate on product and, and on go-to-market. But at the same time, it's, there's a lot of, uh, so it's good at the beginning, but there's, there's a lot of, how should I say, like bad quality in the signups, you know? You know, a lot of like indie hackers who just want to try new stuff and They'll give you uh, a lot of feedback, etc. But uh, among all the signups, let's say that a few of them are like very relevant, like in ICP. And so I think, yeah, it fueled the learnings, but it's not um, 
uh, it's not a sustainable channel. <laughs> you know, you, you can't rely uh, on Product Hunt on the long run to basically generate the signups because the quality of signups, I feel, is not as high as I wish uh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I completely understand. I, I, I once did a, did a podcast, uh, with another founder who also launched on product hunt. And after that, one of my friends who listened to it, he came up to me and he was like, why do you hate product hunt? Like, why, <laughs> why do you always ask if it's like, was it bad for you and for you too? And I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, I think it's a great, absolutely incredible source of like first very early stage validation and, and like you said brand awareness and you know you can do so many launches there right now and you can build a community and you can talk about your features and and whatnot so it's a great platform <laughs> but obviously what i'm trying to get down to is like is it sustainable yeah and, and i think it, you, you're right to to ask the question because we're we founders were like sometimes a little bit delusional. Like, I mean, to be honest, we, we all believe, yeah, maybe this product hunt launch, it's gonna like kick things off, you know? And we believe like, yeah, when the Notion launch, that's basically, it's thanks to product hunt, you know, it, uh, they skyrocketed thanks to the launch and Figma was the same. And we, we have this like belief that it's gonna skyrocket us. And so all founders I, I talked to were all like super disappointed always by the concrete outcome of the launch. It's never, I don't think these days product hunt skyrockets you. And so it's good for founders to just like be aware of it. It's not, mm -hmm. it's good to do it. I believe, I think the most important thing with product hunt launches, it, it's not about product hunt. It's just about launches. It's just like yeah. launch your product, you know, put it out there. And product hunt is a nice way to force you to, you know, put your product out there. Yeah, you need yeah. to do the marketing around it. You need to do, you know, like the, the right copy. And so it forces you to put your product out there. And I think that's the most important part on launching on product hunt, but it could be launching in any, anywhere else really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like the fact that you can now launch, not just like once in half a year, like you used to be, right? Or something like this, but yeah. you can actually launch, I don't know, whatever every day. So like you said, it's a great way to test your copy, to, you know, to test your marketing skills, to see how you talk to people there. Yeah, I mean, by all means, please use product hunt. But... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's a good, I think launches more generally, it forces you to, to align product and go to market, you know, in a launch, you can't, you don't just launch a product. You need to launch a messaging. You need to launch yeah. a brand. And so I love this idea of, you know, like you need some rhythm in, in your organization mm -hmm. and launches are a good way to create rhythm. And so now the discipline that I try to get into is we should launch every three months, you know, like every three months, we should have something meaningful to offer to the world that we want to communicate about it. It's something new. It means we shipped products in the meantime. And so I think that's a good sort of muscle to build as a founder to just like try and launch every three months. Absolutely. All right. Well, since we started talking about growth, right? I just today, I was watching a podcast with the founder of Linear. And then I, was, I started researching about you guys. And it came up that, that you have an integration there. And I was like, oh, okay, that's the fun coincidence. So well, apparently, you know, one of your growth strategies is 
integrations and maybe some other kinds of partnerships. So maybe you could talk about that because again, this is something that was also asked just recently, a couple of days ago. Can we talk more about partnerships and how to successfully build them? Yeah, so that's a good one. So we, we're just starting with partnerships and it's an interesting one because more and more, so what we do, like every new customer we close, we make sure to have the answer to the question, like, how did you learn uh, about us? And more and more, like 80% of uh, our customers, they hear about us through the linear marketplace. Okay. Uh, that's one. And it's half linear and half uh, HubSpot, where we're mm -hmm. also on the marketplace, which is interesting because those two are basically, our, so our biggest competitor is product boards, and they basically don't have integrations with neither of those tools. Okay. And so we realized that that's the main way people discover Cycle is they look for a feedback tool that plugs to HubSpot or a feedback loop that plugs to Linear. And so we're happy that we like did the work to, to go on the marketplaces and it's just the beginning and we want to do it further because Cycle is really, it's a platform that, that's very connected to like many different tools. And so that's really, yeah, I agree. That's a challenge that we want to double down on because we just saw that it worked. We didn't like strategize okay. about it. It's just okay, there's some customers that are coming from those channels. So let's double down uh, on it and try to do like more, more of what works. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, if it works, yeah, just go for it. But yeah. no other kinds of partnerships so far, like affiliate or whatever. No. So th there's one thing that's interesting as well, which I believe is going to become like a major channel in the future. But, you know, we're in the space of uh, Atlassian. I know the Australian company behind Jira. Mm -hmm. And one way they grew is through channel partners because mm -hmm. their main product, Jira, is so flexible that some people basically got trained at Jira and became like Jira consultants. Mm -hmm. And for a while, didn't even have a sales team. It was like basically consulting companies that were, that was like selling, that were selling Jira for them. And I feel there's a, it's a great opportunity for us. So we do have product management consultants that started selling and implemented cycle uh, and implementing cycle at some companies. And we feel like it's very relevant for cycle because our data model is actually very similar to Jira's. So we strongly believe that there are as many ways to ship products as there are product teams. And so it's super important to win in the product management space that your product can actually adapt to any team's typology. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's what made cycle hard uh, to build, but we have that flexibility built in. And so I believe that on the long run, it will become like a, a, an amazing uh, channel for us, especially uh, because there's another trend, which is, you know, the emergence of a uh, no-code, you know, like no-code, Notion and Airtable. They, there's, there are many people that started monetizing their sort of like consulting activities because they make, they became Notion and Airtable experts. Yeah. And we're at the intersection of those two trends because Cycle is a no-code tool very much like Notion and Airtable. We have the same vibes. You configure it the same way. And at the same time, product management is continuing to become a thing. And there are like more and more product management experts. And so I feel like this could become an interesting channel at the intersection of, you know, like no-code builders and product management experts that could basically create uh, their own activities around setting up Cycle instances. So, yeah, that's something I, I think about a lot. Okay, super cool. So yeah, let's let's get to uh, to what you've been up to this last two three months since we couldn't uh, 
schedule our podcast. <laughs> so I guess after the race, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell me why, why did you say no to, <laughs> to do the last two times? <laughs> so that, yeah. that, that's an interesting one. So I think, as I said, like, it took us a lot of time to build a product that people really love and mm -hmm. that retains and like basically a lovable product with amazing retention. And when we launched this into the, the markets, that's where we started. That's where, that's where I learned the hard way that in product market fits, there's not just product, there's market. And that the go-to-market iteration, they're, you know, they're really, as it important. Should be, it should be <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. There is market in yeah. product market fit. Thank you. you know, uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's Brian Balfour from uh, Reforge that said, we should call it market product fit, you know, just to remind founders that, <laughs> you know, it's a, actually the yeah. product market fit is, it, it, it's a go-to-market topic as well. And I think it's a problem that, by the way, of, of many uh, product founders like me is, you know, like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when what you can do is building products, you try to solve every every problem by building more products, right? You stay in your comfort zone. And that's also a reason why I have an issue with the whole like PLG sort of like hype, which I don't think it helps founders. It, it pushes them to, you know, okay, uh, PLG is a cool thing. So we need to be product led as opposed to sales led. And so we're justified to not talk to uh, customers too much, yeah. not do outbound and to like stay focused on building more products. And that's a mistake. That's one of the mistakes I've made. Like uh, it's one of the reasons we took too long to put the product on the market. But so what happens like these past few months, it's basically at some point, I learned that we had the wrong go-to-market motion and that we were trying to do self-serve. We were trying to do freemium. Uh, but it wasn't working for us, right? We had a lot of signups, really like a, a lot of signups thanks to the product hunt launches and the product market, the product marketing and stuff, but we were not activating, right? So people were signing up, they were clicking around, they felt they, they understand the product. Then we contact them. They don't want to talk to us because it feels for them that they're joining a free product. So why would they talk to someone? You know, it's a free product. And again, it took me a long time to realize that actually it makes no sense for a cycle as it is today to have a free plan or to try and activate self-serve because for like several reasons, it's a product which has a long time to value. You know, mm -hmm. we don't have a use case where in less than five minutes, there's an aha moment and, and, and you understand. The second reason is it's a very horizontal product that requires configuration. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's linked to the time to value, but you need to first, you know, play a bit and understand the systems and like trick it to your own needs. And three, we rely on external integrations, right? So the cycle lets you build a feedback system. So you need to ingest data into your feedback system. So it means you need to install sources. And what we realize is like one of the sources, for instance, is Slack. And, you know, our last launch, we doubled down on, on you know, we want people to sign up with Slack. But then what we learned is the product managers that, that sign up, they don't have the rights to install a Slack integration. So they enter cycle and, you know, they're stuck. And basically like for all those reasons, we realized that actually, why do we have a free plan or like, why are we trying to do self-serve? And I realized that it, it, it was linked to my bias as a product founder that I want to do PLG because like PLG is, is, is the cool thing. 
but PLG was not the right motion for our business. And so what happened in the past three months is we completely revamped our whole motion. We sunsetted the free plan. We removed self-serve. We created a new like free trial. And what we did is to unlock your free trial, you need to book an onboarding call. And who does the onboarding calls? <laughs> Me. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and the team, obviously. We were, But at first I wanted to do a lot of them. And so, yeah, for the past three months, let's say that I've been onboarding a lot of customers. Okay. This is what I, I should have done. Uh, just book an onboarding call and do a podcast. True. <laughs> exactly. There for sure you, you, you have me. <laughs> right. That's how I, you probably know Kenny also, yeah. another product management tool, right? So I, I just recently interviewed Sarah, one of the co-founders and uh, also super busy guys, always launching something. And I got her through a support ticket. That's so, the way to go. <laughs> is Sarah here? Can I get some help? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love it. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's an advice I give uh, to uh, aspiring product managers or, you know, like how do you break into uh, product management or how do you uh, convince a great product company to hire you? And the advice I give them is like, use their product and give them feedback. You know, like product obsessed people, they will look at every piece of feedback they receive and if you give them like good articulate feedback, they will want to talk to you. You know, they will want to do a user research session. And so yeah. I, I love your, I love, uh, I love your hack there. <laughs> See? You can, you can never get away from a podcast, but yeah, yeah a couple, <laughs> a couple more questions. So one is I want to, if you have a hack to, I don't know, to maybe what you just did, revamping your entire system from pure PLG into, into something else or talking to your customers or maybe hiring because you're still a, a fairly small team. And I know that, that you have a hybrid motion there. So any hack that works for you right now, this very early stage in order to understand where you're going. The, the truth is, I believe that there's no hack, you know, there's no shortcuts. That's yeah, no, really, it's something that I've learned over time. Uh, I think it's Scott Belsky, who's CPO at Adobe, who said, in the end, the key for success is a team that sticks together long enough to figure it out. Yeah. And the more time passes, the more I feel like there's so much truth into this. And the more I feel like the key in all that is resilience. It's basically like just like not giving up. Because, you know, like funding a company is, is, is hard. And so if I have to talk about the hacks, I would say, like, how do you manage your energy levels so mm -hmm. that you stay resilient and you don't give up, right? I think that's the, most, that's the most important. And so maybe two things. One, the thing you have control over as a founder is who you work with. And so, yeah, over-index on just like working with nice people that give you energy. It makes things like so much simpler. And so that's the first hack. I mean, it took me a while to figure it out. You know, sometimes you feel stuck and you, you feel like you don't work with the right people, but you don't dare to take the hard decision. And then when you take it and you realize that actually you can choose who you work with, uh, things become like so much easier. So that's my first hack, you know. Don't forget that as a founder, you can choose with whom you work and over-index on people who will give you energy. 
And the second hack maybe is, you know, learn about yourself, like learn about what gives you energy, what takes you energy. And it's also something you have control over. It's like, you can choose how you organize your time and you can organize your week in such a way that you end the week with more energy than, than you started it. And, and I think like being intentional about, you know, thinking about your head this week, what, what gave me energy? What took me energy? What did I like? What did I, what, what didn't I like? And how can I optimize my energy levels for next week? I think that's a wonderful hack that helped me. Yeah. Stay resilient, uh, over, over time. Yeah, that's very important. And uh, also something I, I love the first one, because we also talked with Jason Fried about that. And he's like, a lot of founders say, oh, you know, but we do not choose the like the easiest roads or the easiest way. And he's like, why? Who likes complicated? <laughs> like, no one yeah. take the easiest yeah. path. Make your yeah. life comfortable. Make sure you work with people you like and you interact with people you like, complicated is overrated. I agree. I mean, it's hard enough. You, it's already complicated to be a founder, right? <laughs> and so yeah. you've made your, your life hard by deciding to start a company. So within that framework, try and make your life as easy as, as possible because it's already hard. Absolutely. All right. So the last question is our usual question is so far, what has been the biggest win and the biggest failure? And if there is no failure, good job. Maybe just a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> there are like many, many failures. I'll start with the, the biggest win. I'd say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm proud of my resilience as a founder. I think like many people would have given up. I didn't. I didn't. And more importantly, I'm proud of uh, the team that, uh, we've built and I mean the resilience of the team, you know, like going through hard times together and like sticking together. Nonetheless, I'm very proud of the resilient team that we've built. So I think that would be my, my biggest win. Awesome. Failures. Uh, where do I start? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we, we could go on like for hours on failures. That's the most, uh, that's the most, uh, important thing, by the way. I think it's also what builds your resilience is like, accept the fact that you're going to fail at every time. And the importance mm -hmm. is like, what do you take away from every failure? Um, that's so, talking, right? Not, not San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the grounded side of yeah. me that, that speaks here. Even though I think the Americans are better at embracing failure, uh, mm -hmm. better than, than French, but yeah, I'd say the first one, uh, I think I have three that are worth uh, talking about. The first one is it took me way too long to figure out culture. Um, mm -hmm. but there's a stat I'm not proud about is we have three times more X cycle than we have current cycle employees. So I've made a lot of uh, recruiting mistakes uh, and that's bad. That's never good. It's always your fault. It's not the fault of the, the person you recruit and then uh, you, you need to let go. And so I'm really not proud of that. You know, when I started, I was, I think it's a very dangerous statement, like hire fast, fire fast. There's no such thing as firing fast, you know, because mm -hmm. I think you, yeah, you need to hire slow. And then, yeah, obviously when it, it doesn't work, you fire fast, but it, it's really bad to think that way. And I've made mistakes because of that, wanting to hire too fast. And then mm -hmm. you cannot hire fast. You need to give people a chance. You need to do things properly. You need to invest in them. Like if you don't, 
invest in them to try and make it work? How can you like decide that it's not a good fit? So yeah, like that's my biggest failure uh, for sure. Um, the second one is an interesting one is I think I'm not proud of how long it took us to reach product market fit, you know? I don't recommend any founder. It's interesting. Like it took us like before we launched publicly out of beta. And between that day and the day we started Cycle, like the day I started working on Cycle, it was four years. Okay. Four years before generating like the, the first uh, revenue, you know? And I'm not proud of that. Like Figma, it took Figma five years to start monetizing. But Dylan is not proud of it either, you know? So like, if, uh, we should have done it like in, in two years. And so it's not an advice we should give other founders like, hey, do like Figma or do like Notion, you know, like it took them like five years, six years. Uh, I think it's bad, it's bad advice and I'm not proud of how long it took us. And I think one of the reasons it took us so long is we tried to move too horizontally towards the vision. Mm -hmm. So we had this big, like grand long-term vision, right? We're going to reinvent product management from scratch. And this grand vision, it helps you raise money. It helps you hook customers, you know, on the long-term, it helps you recruit great talent, but it doesn't help you with strategy. Like, where do you start? And I feel like strategy is really, I learned it the hard way, but it's what's the sequence of battles you want to win on your way to your vision. And you need to be very intentional about that. And I wasn't, I, I had the grand vision and I was like, okay, let's move towards that grand vision. And one concrete example, which I like is we shipped like so many table stake features, like stuff that wasn't differentiating because it was important for the long-term vision. And I think that's this trainer from Intercom who said that always ship the differentiators before the table stakes, right? And to know what the differentiators are, you need to be intentional about what's the first battle that you want to win. So it was a long answer, but I I feel deeply that it's a big failure for me. And the third one, if I may, I think it's like having been too stubborn on the PLG stuff. So I'm I'm starting to write a, a lot on that, but you know, hey, we're PLG, so we can hide behind product and... You know, like I, I waited way too long before j- just like selling or doing outbound. You know, I was hiding behind, you know, like my designs and my features and my change logs. And yeah, we don't need to, you know, like we don't need to do sales. Like great products sell themselves. So we need to improve the tensor flow. We need to improve the product. And, and I think it delayed our product market fit as well, right? It's another reason mm-hmm. why it delayed our go-to-market learnings basically. And so that's, yeah, that's a mistake. I, I don't want any other founder yeah. to, to make, like do sell, yeah. you know? Thanks for sharing. I mean, it's super important because I was super like, I was interviewing lately founders that would say, well, we lost some customers and that's our biggest failure. And I'm like, great, because mm. that's just the usual life of any startup. And if you're, that's mm. your biggest failure, I mean, just mm. kudos. But yeah, I think those are such important learnings like about the team. Obviously, yes, you, you can never be too proud, I guess, of losing too many people. And I guess it's great that you realize that maybe, yeah, the problem was not yeah. them. But yeah, obviously everything else you said, I think that's a lot of founders will, will really appreciate learning about it. Hopefully. And, yeah. and I love it that you asked that question, by the way, like failures are like so much uh, more interesting than wins. And we don't talk like, I think as an ecosystem, 
It's maybe driven by another discussion we had about the optimism and, and stuff. We always mm -hmm. want, and, and the storytelling as well. You always want to project success, right? And so you change your narrative and you almost forget about your failures, right? You rewrite your story so that it looks like, you know, a constant way towards success. And I think we hear too much of that and it doesn't help founders realize what's behind every success yeah, story yeah. and what's behind it is those many like hard failures from which you had to, to learn and, and, and take lessons. Right, right. It almost makes the overnight success real. So yeah, yeah, I completely understand. Exactly. All right. Well, Maddie, it, it's been, uh, it's been great talking to you. Great fun. Lots of awesome insights. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being so honest and straightforward and down to earth about everything you're doing with Cycle. I've been following you for, for a while. I think about a year. I think I, I saw the first product hunt launch and I thought, well, I'm going to interview that guy. So only a year later, we're here. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. I really enjoyed the, the discussion. And uh, then again, I love it that you asked the, the hard question so we can talk about interesting topics that hopefully can help other founders. Sure. Anytime. And yeah, I hope in one more year, we'll talk about where you are. Yeah, and all the many more failures that I would have <laughs> gone through in, in the meantime. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, thank you so much for the conversation and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.